Support for WVIK comes from Kathleen Collins at the Dragonfly in Bettendorf. Using both conventional and alternative counseling methods for empowerment to help create change for individuals and couples. More information is at KathleenCollinsCounseling.com. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the Heartland Politics show and podcast, which is aired on and distributed by WVIK Public Radio. WVIK is the flagship public radio station in the Quad Cities region of northwestern Illinois and eastern Iowa. This is your host, Robin Johnson. And after every presidential election since 2012, I've eagerly looked forward to books co-authored by my guest today on what really happened to produce the winners and the losers. These books tell the story from a political science perspective, but it's not in academic language or too political science And so it's very approachable for a general audience. And I really recommend these books if you're out there interested in this topic and what really happened. The latest is called The Bitter End, the 2020 Presidential Campaign and the Challenge to American Democracy. And my guest today is the co-author John Sides, who teaches political science at Vanderbilt University and was previously a guest on my show right after the 2016 election. John, thanks for taking the time to be on. Thank you so much for having me, Robin. Well, this is so interesting. Uh, I, I, I have to start and try to get through uh, some things. I want to I want to get to some common uh, maybe uh, myths about I'll call them myths, but have you have you uh, addressed some about what happened? But first, it's 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 interesting. You, you define uh, early in the book uh, our politics as calcified. Um what, what is that? And, and define that. And how did we get here? Sure. When we talk about calcification, we mean it kind of like it, it means in the body. You know, when we talk about our arteries being calcified, we talk about things being like more rigid, harder to change. Um, and the way that's manifest in politics, especially when it comes time for elections, is that people are pretty set on the the choice, the party or candidate that they typically make, um, and they're pretty difficult to shift away from that. Um, and we can identify the sources of calcification in a few different places. Um, one is the pretty long-term um, separation of the two parties into more distinctive ideological camps with the Democratic Party shifting to the left and Republicans shifting to the right. On a number of issues that's been going on for decades. Beyond that, there are some much shorter term shifts um, between the two parties in how they view issues related to race and immigration and other kinds of things that travel under the heading of identity politics. And those that polarization between the Democrats and Republicans has happened. I mean, a lot of it has been since Obama or since Trump. Um, so those issues, which didn't use to divide the parties quite as much as they do now, are now really like one of the central axes of political competition. And it's really hard oftentimes to find ways to reach compromises on issues like that. Um, and then third, I, we document throughout the book that when we do a pretty sensitive measurement of the issues that people consider to be the most important priorities, 
Oftentimes it's the polarizing issues, many of which are identity politics issues that rise to the top. And so the things that Democrats and Republicans care about the most are also the things that divide them the most. And so that is, I think all of those things add up to um, an electorate that is increasingly uh, set in its ways when it comes time to voting for Democratic and Republican candidates. And that makes it difficult to get big changes or big shifts. And here we are. Um, I, I remember, I'm old enough to remember when uh, the c candidates would get into office and try to improve the economy. And the Clinton, the, the Clinton campaign theme was, it's the economy, stupid. And in, in, in reading your book, it seems that's, that's less important and maybe not even a factor at all. Is that a fair statement to me? Yeah, I, I mean, 2020 is always going to be a a little bit of a challenging case because the pandemic created such an unusual economic environment. Um, but there is some research that suggests that for both the Obama and Trump presidencies, there was a weakening in the relationship between how people viewed the economy and how they viewed the president. And so Obama's approval rating, Trump's approval rating didn't go up or down alongside changes in how people saw the economy. That seems to have become a little different under Biden, interestingly, right? We've all seen that the growth in the inflation rate appears both to have right, driven down consumer confidence and also Biden's approval rating. And to the extent that Biden's approval rating has improved in the last several months, it is also at the time period in which gas prices have gone down and some other economic things have changed. So I don't want to say that we've reached a point at which the economy just doesn't matter in electoral politics. Um, but we probably have reached a point where partisanship puts a, a floor under a candidate's approval and a ceiling on the candidate's approval. And we're not going to get to a point like we were in, say, 1984, when Ronald Reagan was running for re-election in the midst of a booming economy. Uh, you know, he called it Morning in America in his famous campaign ad. And at that point in time, one third of Democrats approved of the job that Ronald Reagan was doing. And it's really difficult in modern politics now to imagine a world in which one third of Republicans would approve of Joe Biden or one third of Democrats would have approved of, of Donald Trump when he was president. So if one, of the, one of the implications then is that maybe politics becomes more oriented around these divisive fights about issues and less oriented around things where we can actually identify common goals like economic prosperity. You, you talk about how ideology is aligned with partisanship. And for our listeners, that just means that conservatives are aligning with Republicans more and liberals or progressives with Democrats. And you may think, well, what, what, what's the big deal? But I'm old enough to remember again here where uh, in campaigns I've worked through, there were actually uh, liberal Republicans and conservative Democrats. And it's not that long ago, uh, maybe 10 years ago. And and that's a line and it makes it a lot harder, as you mentioned, to compromise. Um, what I guess most people I talk to, though, are very frustrated, John. They consider themselves middle of the road and they just want to get things done. But it seems like the pull is to out to the further on the extremes. Um, it is. Did you see any anything to offer here to to moderates out there from both parties that uh, <laughs> you, you know any type of relief from what we're going through now? Yeah, I think there are there are um, opportunities um, for action. Um, 
you could see this even during the Trump presidency, which was not because these things were actually accomplished always, right? But because there were and was in public opinion um, evidence of pretty substantial majorities that would favor certain kinds of compromise solutions. One of my favorite examples from the book, which is one that Trump did not take, was that there were lots of people who would have supported a combination of uh, extending um, a path to citizenship for the group of immigrants known as dreamers. Um, uh, they were brought here as undocumented immigrants when they were children and now they're grown up um, and still you know, living here as undocumented immigrants. You could have paired that kind of um, immigration reform with additional funding for border security, maybe even portions of the border wall at the US-Mexico border that, that Trump advocated for. And, but that Trump rejected that deal when it was being crafted in Congress because hardline conservatives didn't want to offer dreamers that kind of um, opportunity. You can see it, I think, at times also in the way that the federal government sort of figures out how we're gonna make the government run and how we're gonna fund the government. Um, that sometimes takes the form of a big giant log roll, which is when you start vote trading. Um, so Democrats who don't necessarily want to increase defense spending, but do want to increase spending on other kinds of domestic programs will agree to spend money on both. And Republicans who would prefer more defense spending, but less spending on social programs will also agree to both. And that's how we get the government to run and not to be shut down. And that's not great for the federal budget deficit, but that's one way that you can get action. Um, when Congress has been able to get stuff done, oftentimes during the Biden administration, oftentimes it's the stuff that flies below the radar screen. Um, and so what we are sensitized to as, as news consumers is the stuff that divides the parties where they can't agree and compromise is unsuccessful. But we, there are stuff where it, it can happen, but it's usually more fruitful if that happens largely out of the public eye, which gives members of Congress some room to operate, cut deals, negotiate, and ultimately, um, make something that probably most Americans would end up supporting once they you know, saw what Congress had done. But oftentimes, again, that's not necessarily the incentive that politicians face. And so I think that's why oftentimes we're so confronted with these contrasting messages that don't necessarily construct like compromises that it turns out majorities of Americans would support. I thought it was interesting, the work you've done over the years too on uh how we form our political opinions. And of course, uh, you, you know, I think the man on the street or woman on the street, you talk to him, it's the concept of political socialization. You grow up, your families, school, friends, your upbringing influences those. But you talk about cues, C-U-E-S, yeah. cues from leaders. And it almost seems like people are adapting their views to what their leaders want. Is this new? Is this part of this uh, Obama-Trump era as well? I don't think it's new at all. I think it's actually been a mainstay of our politics. Um, and I would say a couple things um, are at work here. First of all, you point towards political socialization, and that is absolutely how Americans come to have kind of their basic political orientations. Like, do they tend to identify as Democrat or Republican? But part of what you have, you're asked to do as a citizen is not just to form basic political orientations, but to form attitudes about specific issues that occur in the moment that are new or confusing or unfamiliar to you. And most Americans and most citizens of any country, you know, have better things to do with their time than think about politics. 
Um, I'd like to think less about politics myself, but unfortunately, I'm professionally obligated to do that. I so at the end of the day, like, how do you end up? How do you know what to think? And a lot of times, an obvious way that we do that, and we do this in life too, not just with politics, is to find a trusted source and to let that trusted source give us information. And we use that information to form the attitude. Um, and in politics, what that oftentimes means is following along with the messages that your leaders of your party are, are offering to you. Um, if the leaders of both parties are, are actually on the same page, what that oftentimes means is that people who are paying to, attention to politics form kind of a bipartisan consensus that reflects the one that the leaders have. But when leaders do disagree, which is of course pretty common, then you oftentimes see Democrats and Republicans following the messages of their respective parties and becoming more polarized. So we document this in the book with regard to COVID and with regard to the murder of George Floyd. In both cases, you had an initial moment of consensus uh, where it looked like both Trump and Republicans and Democrats were gonna be on the same page, you know, and sort of taking the pandemic seriously. Trump, you know, in March of 2020 calls for national emergency. Um, you know, issue some guidelines that would, you know, lead to state level decision-making um, of closing down certain restaurants and businesses and schools and all those kinds of things. And similarly, in the wake of, of George Floyd's murder, there was a, a fairly striking bipartisan condemnation um, of what happened to Floyd and sort of horror really um, at the video of Floyd's death. And so that just didn't last very long. Right. And so, you know, as Trump sort of pivoted and called for reopening the country, or as Trump and other Republicans pivoted to criticizing the Black Lives Matter movement and the protest activity after Floyd's murder, then public opinion follows suit. So again, in both cases, we're confronted with issues, not the first time we've had to think about pandemic, I guess, or at least, you know, serious viral diseases, not the first time we've had to think about police killings of Black Americans. But you know, in, in those circumstances, I do feel like, you know, we need information that helps us understand and interpret what's going on. And in both cases, you saw public opinion be pretty sensitive to the ideas and messages that leaders were putting out there. Um, it's a very understandable uh, strategy for making decisions as, a, as, as people who are not always very attentive to politics, but it does, of course, open up the possibility that the opinions that we arrive at are not ones that are necessarily correct um, or otherwise good for democracy or anything else. You're listening to Heartland Politics on WVIK Quad Cities NPR. This is your host, Robin Johnson, and my guest today is political scientist John Sides, who's author of a really good book called The Bitter End, The 2020 Presidential Campaign and the Challenged American Democracy. Uh, we've been talking a little bit about some of the major findings. I guess what, what um, uh, it seems like this election... It, 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 as we've been talking about the calcification of American politics, didn't a lot didn't not much changed over the four years. What did change that produced the outcome? And I yeah. guess in the big picture, what what created the outcome that occurred? And, and I mean, you mentioned COVID and George Floyd and racial justice. None of these really shifted things too much, did they? I don't think not in in very clear and direct ways. Um, I think the, the 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 obvious explanation for what differed between the two elections was that you know Trump goes from being sort of the a, cha a challenger right running in the the party opposite the president, um, and to being the incumbent. He goes from being 
um, he does have to navigate a more difficult economic circumstance than he otherwise would have had the pandemic not happened. I think overall, even though there were some you know, countervailing signs like big stimulus checks arriving in people's mailboxes and stuff like that. Um, and I think fundamentally, the, I think the difference is that, you know, in 2016, Trump was a pretty unpopular person, but he was running against a more pretty unpopular person in Hillary Clinton. In 2020, he's an unpopular president, right? So the, the, the idea that voters are going to treat the election at least a little bit as a referendum on how they see the president um, is new in 2020 compared to 2016. And so Trump's approval rating was pretty, you know, below 50% and pretty consistent with the vote share he ended up winning. And, and Biden's vote share was consistent with what you would expect, it, given that he was uh, a population, a pop politician, excuse me, of fairly modest popularity, not, but not, and not particularly unpopular. So he was kind of like in the language of sports analytics, sometimes they talk about like replacement level players, right? Like he's a replacement level politician. He gets normal, normal favorability ratings, not too high, not that low. Um, so, I mean, I think those, the circumstances differed quite a bit in that sense. But again, like in a calcified era, what are we talking about? We're talking about a two point shift in the national popular vote in Biden's favor. And that translates into a, a shift in the key battleground states that's enough to get him the same electoral college majority that Donald Trump had. But again, these are very close outcomes in these battleground states. So, I mean, this is one of the ironies, I think, of a calcified era is that a, a lot of big events like COVID have somewhat small political consequences, but the, the small changes that do happen have big consequences because it determines whether Trump wins or Biden wins. And that has huge implications for governance and, and how politics proceeds for the next four years. You made a, it made a really interesting point in the book that I hadn't thought about. Um, Polling tests, uh, for our listeners, polls ask uh, how people feel about the direction of the country. Is it going well or is it going bad? And by Trump uh, really attacking, uh, almost uh, going uh, running negative ads uh, regarding COVID and Black Lives Matter, the George Floyd thing, almost created the perception that things were going poorly in the country and undermined himself. Is that a fair assumption to make? Yeah, I, I think there was, I don't, I don't know that we have, a we don't have a good way in the book to sort of measure the, the specific impact of that strategy. Um, you know, Trump behaved a lot like uh, the underdog often campaign and does in a campaign. Um, they are more likely to go negative, to run more negative ads. And that's how Trump acted. And I think that's a, that, you know, he was the underdog in the sense that he was trailing in the polls and I think was not necessarily favored to win given his popularity and other factors. Um, but I think the challenge of doing that is always like when, you're, when your argument is like, these are you know, ads that point to like chaotic images, like the protests, of course the ads single out sort of specific episodes of violence at the protests, which may not be representative of what these racial justice protests were overall. But like when you're sort of singling out this kind of domestic unrest, are you actually sort of indicting your own administration's actions? And the other challenge I think for Trump with regard to that issue in particular was that, you know, when you looked at sort of poll questions that asked like, who do you trust to handle issues like 
crime and public safety, race relations. Biden usually had an advantage over Trump. If anything, like Trump's Trump was closer to Biden on like who would you trust to handle the economy? Um, that's kind of, they were kind of neck and neck on that question. But I think the, the 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 polarizing way in which Trump responded to the murder of Floyd probably didn't didn't really help him. And then leaning into that issue, I know they were trying to sort of make defund the police and all of these kinds of things stick to Biden. But leaning into that issue, it's not clear to me that it was an obvious path, um, either because you don't want to point to bad things happening in the country when you're the incumbent or because you don't want to specifically single out issues related to law and order when it's not clear that the public thinks your handling of those issues is better than your opponent's handling of those issues. You mentioned defund the police. Uh, yeah. I heard from a lot of guests, uh, and now these were these were uh, uh, folks uh, looking at returns in rural areas and some of the factory towns along the Mississippi River, which I know you're familiar with, uh, who felt like that made a a major impact on the Democrats underperforming on below the presidential level. You had kind of a an, an interesting counter theory there that I thought uh, was was worth bringing up to, for our listeners. Sure. We're just not as persuaded that there's good direct evidence that um, issues related to policing hurt Democratic candidates. Now, admittedly, like ours is a study of the presidential election, but it's not clear to me why our findings at the presidential election should be substantially different than what you would see in voting for congressional candidates or other candidates. Um, there's a couple of moving pieces of our argument. Um, one is that, you know, when the protest activity was at its peak, you know, in June and July, this was a time in which Biden's edge in the polls actually increased a little bit. Um, I don't think it's necessarily like a cause and effect story, but it seems odd that like if the protests the visuals associated with those protests, which obviously overrepresented the disorder and violence at those protests. You know, if, if those are supposed to be bad for Biden, you would think that just the fact that they were on the news all the time would, would, would be accompanied by a drop in his popularity or a drop in his standing uh, in the head-to-head -head polls with Trump. And that didn't happen. Uh, we also looked at whether like, racial justice protests had a local impact. So did, did Biden do worse or better than Hillary Clinton in counties where there were these protests? Um, and there was a really great data set by some political scientists who you know, counted up the number of these protests where they occurred, tried to capture whether there was some degree of uh, violence of some kind, unclear always exactly who perpetrated it, you know. Um, and we found if anything, Biden did slightly better in counties that had these protests um, compared to Hillary Clinton. And that was true even if the protests included some degree of unrest or violence or you know arrests or something like that. Again, I don't think that's a strict cause and effect story, but it, it, it works in the opposite direction than you think it should. We also couldn't find any evidence that Trump's ads, the ones you were just talking about, hurt Biden. There was no correlation between how many ads Trump ran in a particular media market and then how that media market voted relative to how it had voted four years before. Um, I think fundamentally, the, the one of the things that we we saw in our just study of public opinion right after George Floyd and then and what ended up happening in the election was just that a lot of people's, rather than their views uh, or their voting behavior, let's say Democrat versus Republican being shaped by how they thought about policing, we found that like 
whether you're a Democrat or Republican shaped how you viewed the police. So the chicken and the egg issue kind of went in the opposite direction. People updated their views of the police, their views of Black Lives Matter, you know, in accordance with their partisanship, which of course is based on the partisan messages and cues they were hearing from leaders. Um, so I, I, again, I, I don't think, you know, what we don't have is like uh, a really good way to get at like, was there a like causal effect of a defund the police type argument on people's vote choice? We don't have a good experiment we can run that would really nail that down. But a lot of the evidence that we have, despite its limitations, is just inconsistent with the idea that this was a, a substantial drag on Joe Biden, and I would argue probably on most Democratic candidates. I, I'm bringing this locally, and I know for our listeners, John and I met, we were reminiscing right before we started taping at a Harkin Center event back on a whole January day, I think, we think 2013. So John has been to Iowa, of course, very familiar with the state. Um, and of course, as you know, we're right in the heart here of Obama, Trump country. And uh, where counties that voted twice for Obama then voted for Trump in 16. Uh, you, you, it, it's interesting that some Democrats have come on my show, talked about, well, we got to get these voters back. Um, is that pretty much uh, cut and dried? Uh, have, have, has, has that shaken out pretty much uh, one way or the other based on your analysis? The data that we have that speak to this is we have interviews with the same groups of voters. Um, these are the exact same people, a um, few thousand of them in 2012, 2016, and 2020. Um, so acknowledging that, like, obviously the electorate is changing between those three years because younger people are becoming eligible to vote and there's changes in turnout like there were in 2020. Uh, but still, it's useful to kind of focus on this group of voters. So we identified in 2016 the Obama-Trump voters because we, we they told us in 2012 they voted for Obama. They told us in 2016 they voted for Trump. So then fast forward four more years and we can look and see where those voters landed. Um, they were still with Trump, overwhelmingly. Um, and the same thing was true for the smaller number of Romney-Clinton voters. You know, they were with Biden. So one of the things we pointed out in the book was that the, the swing voters of 2016 were reliable partisans by 2020. In my mind, that makes me think they're not coming back. Um, the changes in the party coalitions that we've seen more generally, um, which you can map at the county level, which you can then drill down and look at neighborhoods or look at even individual voters. Um, I think those changes, which have produced obviously growth in, for Democrats in um, more areas of more uh, college-educated voters, particularly suburban communities in some places, but that's produced gains for Republicans in states that have a larger rural population, as well as states that have a larger population of white voters with less than a college education. I mean, I think those, co those coalitional changes are increasingly baked in. Um, and it, so for what I would say to Democrats is that, if, you know, if you're trying to win the presidential election and you're trying to win the electoral votes of Iowa or Missouri, or Ohio, it's pretty hard. I think it's a yeah. long shot. However, right, you know, these are not, these states are not so overwhelmingly Republican that you can't win any statewide race ever, right? And I think the, the best example of that is looking at like Laura Kelly, the governor of Kansas, right? There are examples like this where, again, you have to be the right person running in the right electoral environment 
And even still, maybe it's an uphill battle, but maybe it'll be an uphill battle for Joe Manchin when he has to run for re-election um, in 2024. But I do feel like, you know, there are opportunities because there's just enough, like, again, small shifts, even in a calcified era, produce big consequences. And I think that's where your opportunities um, lie. It doesn't, so it does, I would never say to a Democratic uh, operative working in Iowa, stop campaigning, you know, don't go talk to these voters. Um, but I would just have, a, as I think most of the, like the firsthand accounts that I've read of people trying to have these conversations door to door, like I would just be prepared, right? To have a pretty stiff headwind blowing at you, depending on which doors you're knocking on. Um, and I think at the national level, it's, you know, national level races are the hardest ones to win, but you still might be able to find success down the ballot. This is unfair to you, but I got 30 seconds. So I'm going to ask a question that probably you could talk about for several minutes. It's I, I read your books. It seems like the immigration issue is what really shifted the identity politics in this country and, and was a major uh, cause of the shift of, of more working class Democrats to the Republican Party. Is that is that a fair take? I think it was one of the one of the crucial issues for sure. Um, Trump's politics in 2016, continuing through his presidency, um, combined with the sharp contrast that Clinton and then Biden drew with him. I really feel like that if you were a, a white Obama voter with a conservative view of immigration, and there were a substantial number of them, maybe a third of them, depending on which question you used to measure these attitudes, right? That really pulled people toward Trump. And then Democrats reacted in the opposite direction by becoming much more pro-immigrant once they saw how Trump was campaigning and how he was conducting his presidency. And so now, you know, immigration goes from an issue on which there's a very modest partisan divide in, let's say, 2015, to an, uh, now one on which there's a, a partisan divide more than two times as large as of the end of Trump's presidency. And you can see in just our national politics how much more difficult it is to find ways to do bipartisan immigration reform. And it wasn't that long ago. It wasn't even 10 years ago. It was 10 years ago, 2013, that we were looking at the possibility of a of a of a, an actual congressional compromise that would produce the kind of reform that George W. Bush couldn't achieve. So yeah, the politics of immigration changed a lot, and the alignment with partisanship is one of the things that I think has made the politics of immigration so much more difficult. History would have changed so much if that part of, if that uh, compromise would have passed. Absolutely. Um, my guest today, uh, our Heartland Politics, has been uh, John Sides, who teaches political science at Vanderbilt University, and he's a co-author of a series of excellent books on the last three uh, presidential elections we have, and these are going to go down as classics, I think. Uh, uh, the latest one is called The Bitter End, the 2020 Presidential Campaign and Challenge to American Democracy. John, I want to thank you again for being my guest today. Thank you again, Robert. It was a real pleasure. You're listening to Heartland Politics with Robin Johnson, a presentation of WVIK Quad Cities NPR.